0: from Psalm uh, 24, page 555 of the Church Bible. Psalm 24, beginning at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? who may stand in his holy place. For the one has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in.
1: Uh, this, <clears throat> this past week, I've been um, on a thing called Word Alive, which is a big Christian conference uh, in North Wales. Um, sort of four and a half thousand people tucked in there. And if you've been around those sort of things, and you've been around the, the sort of Christian world for a bit, you'll know how sort of alarmingly small the Christian world is. And so on something like that, you keep bumping into people that you, you sort of recognize, but if you're anything like me, you're halfway through a conversation, um, and throughout the entire time of the conversation, you're desperately thinking to yourself, who is this person? I know I know them, and I know I ought to be able to sort of orientate myself and have a clue who they are. Um, <coughs> now, that can be very embarrassing. And, of course, the degree of the embarrassment is also is is often proportional to the, the, the sort of significance of the person you're speaking to. Uh, my wife, Beth, uh, gives me permission to tell a story about a time that she was, uh, she was working on the welcome desk at All Souls, uh, Langham Place, uh, which is just off Oxford Circus, central London. Um, and a man uh, wandered in from, from the street and asked if he could use the toilet. Now, being where it is, so close to Oxford Circus and, and sort of lots of passing people, the church uh, has decided it can't really function as a public toilet. So they have a firm policy. Um, So, very politely, she explained that, no, I'm afraid that wouldn't be possible. Um, Now, all would have been well had it not been that the man standing in front of her was, in fact, a man called Michael Bourne, um, who was, at that time, the Bishop of Manchester, um, but, perhaps more relevantly, was the previous rector of All Souls Langham Place, uh, the church whose toilet he was quite keen on using. Now, to his great credit... Um, he didn't say, do you know who I am, young lady? Um, instead of that, he walked out of the door, down the steps, around the corner, to find John Stott or Richard Buse to see if they would let him use the toilet uh, instead. Now, how awkward to come face-to-face with somebody of great importance and fail to see who they are. Uh, the psalm that we're looking at uh, this morning um, is providing us with. In fact, the psalms that we have been looking at these last two weeks uh, provide us with a wonderful portrait uh, of who the Lord is. Uh, last week we were looking at uh, Psalm 22, uh, seeing their God as saviour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 23, God a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, And now in in this psalm, uh, the Lord as king. It's a relevant psalm for us if we're thinking about the Christian faith, trying to work out what we make of Christianity. Um, Working out who God is uh, is pretty central to that process. But it's also relevant to those of us who would call ourselves Christians. Christians. Because being clear who it is that we are following is pretty critical uh, as well. So three headings, just to walk us through the three sections of the psalm. Uh, they're on the back of the service order if that helps you. Uh, to see that the King of Glory is first, creator of all things. And then secondly, perfect in all holiness. Uh, and then finally, victorious against all enemies. So first, uh, the King of Glory is creator of all things. See how the psalm begins. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. I mean, the idea is simple enough in these opening verses, isn't it? Uh, That the earth belongs to the Lord because he is its creator. And we get that. Uh, somebody paints a painting, uh, and they sign their name in the bottom right-hand corner. It's their painting. They created it. Uh, somebody um, gets in the kitchen and bakes a cake. Uh, they put all these ingredients together. It, it, it's the cake that they've made. Uh, one of our musicians writes a song. It's their song, for they created it. But, but the psalm pushes us slightly further than that. Because when we create something, we always take what already exists and we kind of rearrange it. So an artist takes a canvas and some paints and rearranges them to make a glorious painting. We take some ingredients and we mix them up, I think. That's how it goes. Um, And a cake sort of pops out at the end of it. Even a musician takes notes that exist and rearranges those that's always the nature of our creative activity uh, when we create we take things that are already in existence and we rearrange them to create something new but the bible tells us that the, the creative activity of god is different to that he forms the earth he brings it into being out of nothing that's what the genesis account Uh, that we're going to be looking at in the evening, describes to us. There was nothing, there's a void, and God speaks, and things come into being. It's an utterly different form of creative activity to our rearrangement of what already exists. Do you see that? And it means that we belong to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Whether we recognize him or not, we belong to him. We don't just belong to him because we're people who've chosen to come to church. Now, the people who haven't chosen to come to church, who don't give God a second thought, they belong to him as well. But tragically, not yet knowing that wonderful truth. And and consider the scale of the creative power that is involved in what is being described here. Um, and one of the speakers at Word Alive, I think it was Paul Mallard, um, he was a pretty ordinary bloke and he, and he was recalling a time when he had uh, gone to speak. Um, I can't remember now whether it was Cambridge or Oxford, but it was one of the two universities. And he'd gone to speak and been asked to speak about um, Christianity and science. And he felt a little bit out of his depth but so he did, some, he did some research and he began his talk by explaining that if all the stars in the universe were divided up so that every single person on the face of the planet Earth were given a share, then each person would end up with 6.7 trillion stars each. He said at the end of the talk, young man in an anorak came to talk to him. He said he had a bad feeling. The young man in the anorak said that he was studying theoretical physics and he said his bad feeling deepened. And then the young man said to him, I want to take issue with your statistics. He said, you said that if all the stars were divided up amongst the population of the Earth, each single person would have 6.7 trillion stars. You're wrong. It would be 10 trillion. At the end of the first service, somebody came up to me and said that might have been true 10 years ago. <laughs> it's probably a hundred trillion now. If you want to catch me, I'll be in the foyer afterwards. The point is, it's a big universe, and in identifying God as its creator. We haven't begun to grasp the scale of the power of the God who could create all of that. He's a God of astonishing greatness, so far exceeding us. Out of chaos, he created order, founded the earth on the seas, established it on the waters. When we come to God, we come to a God far more powerful, far mightier than we have begun to imagine can't be right to saunter into his presence as it were with our hands in our pockets certainly can't be right when we come to the second part of the psalm and discover that this king of glory is not just powerful but he is also holy now actually that's a great relief it's very good news to know that a God of such power is a holy God. Think how terrible it would be if, if there were a God who had so much power and he were wicked or inconsistent. It would be terrible to have a God yielding that much power in, in an evil and unreliable way. But instead, we discover here that he is holy, perfect in righteousness, perfect in goodness. And that's why verse 3 asks the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his presence? How could you come into the presence of such a God, so perfect in holiness? Well, only someone, verse 4, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false. God in other words to enter the presence of this god you need to be holy as he is holy that's the requirement to enter in you have to have clean hands that represents the things that we do it represents where we click our mouse who we wag our finger at what our hands take and from whom And it represents every time that we shake our fist in rage. The person who approaches God is the person whose hands are clean. Who never acts in a way that is in any sense unrighteous, ungodly, unkind. Whether those actions are in public or in private. Perfectly, gloriously good. And it's not just outward actions that need to be correct. God is concerned also about what is within. As well as clean hands, we need a pure heart. So that stands for our motivations, for what it is that drives the actions that we do. It's not enough to do the right things. You need to do the right things for the right reasons. But the reality is how, how mixed our motives are even when we're doing something good. See, I stand up here and I give you a talk. I preach a sermon on a Sunday. And is my desire to to try and speak God's word faithfully, truly, accurately? Is my desire to try and be a blessing to you uh, as uh, Christ church gathered together? Yes. But is my heart also concerned with preaching a good sermon so that You might think well of me, so that I might seem to you to be impressive. Yes, those motives are there as well. We can't untangle them, can we? We're doing good things. Our motives so often mixed and muddled. It is so hard. None of us free of those muddled motivations. But that's just the point. God's standards of purity so far exceed us. The next phrase pushes us on to to the question of loyalties, on the things that our hearts finally trust. Uh, Let me put it like this. Where is it that you look for a sense that all is well? Yeah, that the moment where you think uh, that you feel secure, that you're content that the world is in order, yeah, what needs to have happened for you to, to, to have a sense of your you trust that all is good in the world? What would it be? Would it be that, that your family is thriving? Would it be that the lab results are clear? Would it be that performance review of your recent work appraisal has been positive? Is that what will give you a sense that all is well? Is it that an exam has been passed? Is it that your bank balance is healthy? Or is it that a spouse or a close friend is attentive and caring towards you? Would it be one of those things that gives you a sense that all is well in the world? That I feel I feel happy and secure because I have this thing. Now, in a sense, I hope that all of those things are true for you. Nothing wrong with wanting any of those, is there? They're all good things. But to, to place any of them as being the source of your final security in life, the thing that you trust in to make everything okay, well, that means that that thing has climbed above its proper place to replace God as the one who should really be your source of security, the one in whom you trust to make all things well. In other words, that thing has eclipsed him, become an idol in which we have put our trust. So the one who can approach God has clean hands, a pure heart, and doesn't trust in an idol, and then finally doesn't swear by a false god. So it's not just right relationship with the Lord, but also right relationship with other people. No deceit, no lies, Perfectly right dealing with one another. See, here's the way of life that lets you stand in God's holy place. All of those things perfectly kept at all times. And that's a way of life that means, verse 5, blessing from the Lord. Vindication from God our Saviour. Such, says the psalmist, is the generation of those who seek God's face and find His blessing. Actually, that final phrase in verse 5 might read, such is the generation of those who seek your face like Jacob. You remember him? Jacob, the schemer, the deceiver, seems a pretty unlikely person to enter into the presence of God, but he did when Jacob met God that night. Do you remember the the, the strange wrestling uh, with uh, uh, this... uh, angelic figure who turns out to be the Lord himself. And Jacob won't let him go. Do you remember the tussle through the night? He won't let him go until he gets blessing from him. To be like the person who seeks your face like Jacob. How badly do you want to encounter God? How badly do you want to know him? To do business with him? How passionately do you pursue him? So, okay, let me ask you, how are you doing? Clean hands, pure heart, don't trust in an idol, don't swear by that is false, seek his face with passion and enthusiasm. How are you rating yourself at this stage? How are you going to score yourself out of 100? You're up in the 90s, the 95s? Or are you thinking to yourself, I don't even want to do the maths. (laughs) I'm not like this. In my battle with sin and temptation, I lose. Again and again and again. It's, It's a funny thing, this middle section of the psalm, isn't it? Because in some senses it's really delightful as we read this picture of what it looks like for a person to be gloriously seeking after God. Uh, to be living a holy life. It's a lovely picture, and we sort of of warm to it. But then it's tremendously discouraging, because we think, but I'm not like that. In my battles with sin and temptation, I do lose. And that's what makes the final section of the psalm so important for us. Because we then come to the final section, where we discover that the Lord is also a warrior king. And the significance of this is, That where we do battle with evil and temptation and lose, there is a king who has done battle with evil and temptation and won. Uh, Let me read the final section. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Some versions would have that phrase, the Lord Almighty, as the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies. For this Lord of unsurpassed power and unsurpassed goodness has gone into battle with evil and won. Uh, And these lovely verses uh, from Colossians chapter 2 capture the heart of the gospel message that there is a Christ who has fought the battle with sin and evil and been victorious. And wonderfully, gloriously, He He gives the victory to us. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's the picture of a, of a victor. And it's, it's a public spectacle of, of marching back into the city, returning from battle, the, the, the heroic conquering victor. I don't know, whatever does it for you, it's, it's the double-decker bus with the FA Cup uh, back in the hometown. It's the Allied troops returning Uh, from the defeat of the Nazis. It is a glorious, wonderful picture of of victory, of triumph. Uh, Only the Allied troops returning after a victory like that is is tinged by the recognition of, of all the lives that have been lost. But in this victory parade, just one life has been lost. Christ has died but as we've just so gloriously celebrated at Easter, he has also risen from the dead, triumphant. Do you see the picture of the Lord God that this psalm places before us? King of glory who is the creator of all things exceeds us in power and might. The king of glory who is perfect in holiness, utterly pure. The king of glory who is mighty in battle has won this great triumph for us. Well, as we close, how will we receive such a king? Um, Across the way here in uh, in Cambridge um, is the great gate of Queen's College. There it is. Uh, it's, it's like lots of gates um, here in Cambridge, uh, and it's got, it's got a sort of little door in it. Um, and if you, you've visited some of the colleges, you'll know what that's like. Um, there's a little door in the gate, and you open it up, and, and often there's a sort of little, little steppy-over thing, which you don't notice, and you trip over that. Um, and actually, they're, they're often bizarrely small, these doorways, and you have to duck, get your head in, Uh, and underneath um, in order to get into the college now you tell me if queen's college were to host a visit by her majesty the queen how do you think it's going to go think they're going to open the little door so her majesty needs to sort of step over the little step and knocks her hat off on the on the top of the doorway it's not going to be like that is it No, 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 they're going to throw open the gates. They're going to fling them wide as they receive the Queen into their premises. How will it be for you and I? How do we, how are we receiving the King of Glory? How wide, if I can put it, is is your heart? To allow him to enter in. Do we see the scale, the majesty, the power, the might, the holiness of this God? And he would enter in. He would do business with us. That's what he won the victory for. Our hearts wide to receive him. We need a God this big to enable us to do battle with sin in our lives. All of those other things that that tempt us and lure us. We need to remember just how great and mighty God is in order that we might put those other things in their proper place and have God in his. We need a God this big if we are to do battle with the fear that so often hampers us and crushes us. To have the confidence to step out in faith. Whether it's doing the team course or going somewhere where a mosquito's going to bite you. Whatever it is that frightens us, we, we need a God that is that vast to give us confidence to overcome our fears. But so often the God that we let into our hearts is shrunken, pocket-sized. So this morning, let's allow this psalm to confront us with the God of glory and fling wide our hearts to receive him. Let me lead us in a prayer. Now Father God, how uh, we thank you for uh, the words of this psalm that uh, confront us uh, with your uh, great majesty, for your might, your power, your glory. Uh, we're sorry, uh, Lord God, that we do uh, shrink you, uh, and in our imaginations, in our day-to-day living uh, treat you as if uh, you were uh, some sort of a a pocket-sized God for us and not uh, the God who brought all things into being, uh, the God who is uh, pure and perfect in a holiness that surpasses us. But how grateful we are also. Uh, that though we do misstep in that way, uh, you are gracious towards us. You have fought and won a battle so that though we trip and fail in relation to uh, uh, temptation and sin again and again, uh, you have won a mighty victory over evil and sin and you've granted it to us. How we thank you for that. Uh, Help us to receive you as you are And help that reception uh, to transform everything about the way uh, that we think and live and praise. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.